Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing, and then some, and maybe even, book reviews. Yep. So, I'm going to have a little book review. Don't worry, there's no homework. But um, a couple of my friends, and probably your friends too, Adrian Crane and Deborah Steinberg, wrote a little book called uh, The Truth Zone, Stories of Adventure and Misadventure Climbing California's Highest Peaks which is uh, available from Amazon. I believe it might just be Kindle. But you should be listening to Kindle anyway. You can have a lot of books at once. So Deborah sent me the book, and I had a really fun time reading it. Um, it's it's not a how-to, but it's sort of a how-to and maybe how-not-to. But it's split up into chapters of each each climb. They give you some of the particulars and uh, talk about the people that were there. And I was going to say for everybody listening to this, you'll know most of the names in here. But we got a lot of new listeners, so um, you won't know who they are. But it's just kind of fun, uh, kind of breezy. You know, each ep- each uh, each chapter is just kind of a self-contained story. You know, I kind of I kind of whipped through it fast, but then I'm like reviewing it, so I needed to get it done. But uh, so I will I will give it uh, two thumbs up because that's all I have. But I think you'll you would enjoy this uh, climbing the uh, 15, 14 foot fourteen thousand footers in California. So that's uh, the truth zone. Stories of adventure and misadventure, climbing California's high peaks. So, yeah, go for it. Um, you know, maybe like put a copy of it in your pack. And if Adrian is happens to be refereeing a race that you're at, and you're getting a penalty, and it just casually fell out of your uh, pack, maybe it'll go a little easier on you. So, and as long as we're in the promotion business, uh. Go to Spotify or Google Play or Apple Podcasts if you want and give us a positive review. I haven't asked for one of those in like a thousand years, but we've got a lot of new people. Um, some of you might have seen it, but probably a lot of you haven't. We uh, tripled our audience in the last couple of weeks. so I'm actually talking to a fair number of, uh, of uh, you people out there. You racers, you want to be racers, you newbies. So thanks for finding us and enjoying it. And last bit of business, there'll be a donate link in the uh, the um, show notes. So if you want to kind of help out with keeping this thing going, that'd be much appreciated. So, And more importantly, if you know anybody at Eco Challenge, tell them that I need to uh, go to Patagonia with them to take pictures. So, all right, enough of that. Rob Preston, Gippsland, Eco Challenge. Um, that's all you need to know. So, go fast, take chances, and thanks for listening. Bye. Yeah. So, well, I guess I should say congratulations, huh? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> pretty happy with our results. So, yeah. a lot of hard work put into that one. Yeah. Um, so let's let's start at the start. What do you, how did how did you guys get in? Yeah, so we, we put in a 
application for Eco Challenge just like everybody else did. Uh, I guess the difference being uh, that I put in an Australian team uh, as opposed to some of the other teams I've raced in the last couple of years, like um, AMK for US and a yeah. couple of races with Hadloffs from Sweden. Uh, but I was keen to have an Australian team, and that consisted of um, my wife Catherine. So I guess that was a bit of a you know possible draw card. Uh, yeah. And um, and Tim Boot from also lives uh, quite local to us. Um, Dave Slosh, who we've raced with quite a lot in the last few years, uh, including God's Own this year. Uh, he was actually uh, fortunate enough to get two entries. So he was wow. in um, another team, which was made up of um, uh, the Thunderbolt uh, team, but that actually mm-hmm. had the the two Dornham twins um, yep. from Melbourne. So yep. they had a good bit of a... You know, everyone's thinking about their angle... Uh, for a reality TV application, and you know, you really did need to think of that uh, because there were yeah. really not a great deal of teams that just got by on their total race performance um, of the past. So, yeah, we ended up with um, Dave raced with Thunderbolt, and we had a spare uh, place and uh, considered a lot of different teammates, but. Was really keen to get uh, another navigator and um, Aaron Prince from New Zealand. Uh, he didn't have a team because uh, hmm. the Swedish team he'd been racing with um, decided not to race, and that was a great advantage for us to get yeah. him on board. Um, but yeah, it was a total um, first time race for the four of us. Um, I've known Aaron for. Over 20 years, we've been racing against each other in orienteering and adventure racing, and he knows Catherine quite well also, but Tim and Aaron had never met before, so that was always going to be, you know, a little bit interesting racing with a, a brand-new teammate for um, the world's toughest race. Yeah, well, I've heard he's pretty good. He knows a little bit about navigating, so... Yeah, we we weren't really too concerned about uh, his uh, his level yeah. and you know, his results speak for himself. Um, yeah, I, I've actually joke about the fact that I I only ever replace um, or get an opportunity to race with a team when Aaron's unavailable, and <laughs> then I normally go and fill his shoes for um, for numerous different teams I've raced with. So what's it what's it like racing with somebody like that 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 you you know know by reputation so well? Yeah, well, I mean it's it is interesting what everyone's like when they actually get into the race situation mm-hmm. because uh, it's a lot different to you know, the time you know, the less stressful times when you're getting organised. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. look, I really didn't do much. I don't think I even had a conversation with. Um, any of Aaron's uh, teammates to find out what he's actually like. I really just based it on uh, what I expected his personality was going to be. And, um, yeah, look, we were pretty – I was pretty close with that. Um, It was interesting having that – the dynamic of having two navigators in a team uh, was always going to be a little bit different when we only got one set of maps – so, yeah. you know, that's a bit of a change from 
the norm these days where we get two sets of maps. Um, but I was actually quite happy to... I could see that Aaron was going to be much harder to take the maps away from, so I was sort of happy to take that backward step, and, and we did um, we did swap it around a bit, but Aaron probably did, say, you know, two-thirds of the work, and I did about a third. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, and look, physically... Um, you know, he fitted really well in the team. He was actually super strong physically, um, stronger than I expected. So uh, I felt like um, a lot of the time he was probably just waiting for us to try to keep up, especially on some of the difficult um, slippery rock sections uh, that he excelled at. Yeah. So, interesting. Um, what was I going to say? What? I don't remember. It must have not been. Oh, I know. When when did you guys find out that you were in in the race? What was kind of the timeline, like from when you applied to finding out? To, you know. That? Yeah. So the timeline, from what I remember, was an application in either late December or early January, and then it was really a pretty quick timeline a turnaround from when they. Uh, Went through all the 400 applications, yeah. uh, and we found out late January. So uh, that was quite a long time, really, between yeah. January and uh, September. But it did come around remarkably quickly. Uh, there was, uh, and uh, there was a lot of different, uh, I guess, new legs or skills. Um, sports that we needed to train for for this event, which really added to the um, you know the excitement of the event for me was that you were forced to go out there and uh, you know you actually had to provide certificates of white water skills of ropes uh, ascending descending navigation uh, first aid uh, so all teams needed to have um, all those certificates signed off, and mm-hmm. and then there was also stand-up paddleboarding, which I'd never done before. Outrigger paddling, which to the I guess the novice or the inexperience, you kind of would, would think it was just like regular canoeing or single-blade paddling, but it is you know reasonably unique. We also had to learn sailing, uh, so. That was another factor thrown in there. Uh, but look, that made it a really interesting last couple of months of training um, leading up to the race. Yeah, so got to learn a lot of new skills. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to teach the old dog some new tricks. <laughs> so um, any of the new stuff that you like, wow, this is really fun, I want to do some more of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, the... The outrigger paddling was probably the one that I enjoyed the most, and mm-hmm. we um, made some efforts to go into Melbourne, which is a two-hour drive for us, uh, to do some training with a local club, and this was through the middle of winter, and not many outrigger paddlers actually want to train in the middle of winter, but we are fortunate <laughs> to have a couple of uh, really keen women who were training for the uh, world 
uh, Outrigger Championships that were in the Sunshine Coast only a month ago. So they were sort of keen, you know, to get us on board and uh, I guess they were maybe a little bit surprised when they had some newcomers uh, that were um, the skill level was a little bit higher than what they were expecting a, a novice to be. But you know, yeah. we have done a lot of paddling, just not in an outrigger boat. Uh, yeah. So that was if I had a club local or a waterway that I could do that, I'd definitely like to do more of it. The fact that you have up to six people in a boat, um, and so it's it really mixes it up a bit compared to just a single kayak or you know, a typical two-person kayaks that we use in adventure racing. Uh, having all four of us in the boat together is um, you know, is a great addition, I think. Yeah. So, and we'll get we'll we'll talk a little bit about more of that when we get to the race. Um, so, I'm having you clarify a few rumors. <laughs> um, okay. So you you guys. So what I heard is the team's got a stipend from the race to help out with your training and travel and all that. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so that okay. was an absolute blessing, uh, something yeah. that we didn't know about when we applied or even when we got accepted. Uh, wow. But it was a nice little bonus to um, you know, for us. It meant that we um, spent some of that money on bringing our family uh, over to Fiji and doing what you know, and paying you know to do some extra training, uh, and I guess just lessen the burden on the family was probably the um, the most important part. But for all those new teams out there uh, or newer teams who had to spend a, a lot of money on gear, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know they spent more than that. Um, yeah, particularly like the one of the Fijian teams I spent a lot of time with and the amount of gear that they had to buy and the expense and difficulty of getting it to Fiji was um, mm. quite extraordinary. And yeah. so, yeah, very – everyone was really appreciative of um, of that fact. Yeah, and easier than going out. And uh, so it was sort of in lieu of not being able to have any – naming sponsors for the race. Sponsors. Or any yeah. sponsors in it at all, really. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that was the restriction. But mm. definitely uh, there was a lot of money thrown at this event. And yeah. I'm sure that we're going to, you know, you'll see that when you see the final production. Uh, it's, it's definitely not going to be um, a couple of guys running around with a GoPro and... Um, you're saying it's not the same as me and Chris Radcliffe covering um, a race? <laughs> no, but you guys might get something out within, you know, six to 24 yeah. hours of the event. That's, that is the difference, yeah. There is something to be said about, you know, the timelines of it. Oh, but. Yeah. So how hard is it waiting to see? I mean, there's a... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really a, you know, <laughs> uh, Yeah, Because, like, I've... We've got these moments where you expect that the coverage will be you know, of us particularly because, of course, you know, I didn't see anyone else at race, but uh, there's moments out there on the, the rope section, which was extraordinary, uh, where there was helicopters buzzing around us for about half an hour and 
Um, just those spots where you know that, wow, they must have got some good footage here. What's it going to turn out to be like? Um, yeah. That's, that's going to be amazing. Uh, and then I guess the point that the area we don't have any idea is how much coverage uh, your team or another team might get in terms of their yeah. interviews, um, the profiling, because we know that there's only going to be a you know, finite number of teams. That, there were 66 teams racing, and if you know from previous EK Challenge coverages, they might focus on yeah. six teams. So whether you've got the, the interesting story or um, you know, the big cheesy grin with all the say all the right words or um, in this case your Instagram following is big enough to um, make yourself look good then uh, you know you might get more coverage but uh, ultimately uh, all us experienced racers were there to to win uh, and and do our best Uh, and you know the interviews on the side were a bit of a yeah you know a secondary Uh, you know, and a necessary step to being involved in the race. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. So what I've heard is that it was actually a real real race. Is that... Yeah, absolutely. Feeling? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was no doubt it was a, it was a race. And uh, with the race director, the course director, Kevin, um, made a point at the presentation... Uh, that Aaron Prince had asked, is this a rally TV show or is this a race? And I guess he was maybe a little bit surprised by that question, but uh, he didn't realise maybe that there were a lot of sceptics in the adventure racing world about what this event was going to be like. Um, yeah. In his mind, it was always a race and, and that was his focus. Uh, although there were other parts you know, of the production that, it was a television program and that was their you know, priority. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty yeah. sure behind the scenes there would have been some, you know, a lot of tug and war uh, between what was more important. Um, was it more important to get that medic helicopter uh, on the ground uh, in the timeliest manner or is it more important to get another helicopter there with a cameraman on the ground before... That arrives, those type of uh, yeah. conversations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, makes sense. Then um, we're gonna we're gonna get to the race here in a little bit. But um, how often did you how often did you see cameramen? Uh, I mean, every transition, of course, there was yeah lots of them. Uh, but mm-hmm. so I guess a bit of a detail about the structure of the race was that there were five legs and mm-hmm. so only four transition points that you actually saw your um, TAC as they were called or your support crew and yeah. each one of those transition points you got a compulsory 90 minute stop and yeah. part of that was to allow you you know one or two team members to go off and have an interview so I guess it didn't disadvantage the you know, lead teams as much. Um, so, you know, that was literally a sit-down 20, 25-minute interview. Uh, so you know, it takes up 
you know, quite a bit of time. And yeah, and when you're tired as well, you know, <laughs> who knows what we <laughs> look like or sound yeah. like. I've, I've got no idea. But yeah. uh, and then in terms of uh, other camera crews, there were from what I heard, there was about eleven crews of three cameramen, and mm-hmm. they were spread throughout the field. So they were, yeah. some of them, you know, stayed a lot with the, you know, their special interest teams that they'd picked out. Uh, we really didn't see a lot of uh, coverage in terms of a cameraman following you for a whole leg or something like that. We actually saw really little of that, uh, yeah. which I guess was a little bit surprised that they still don't, um, you know, there was no... You weren't allowed to take your own GoPro or anything like that, which personally I think uh, they miss out on a lot of good coverage from that uh, because the moments that you really remember or you think um, are special, like the sunrises where you're looking over the highlands uh, and you've got no one with you and you're like, oh, well, that was the highlight of, you know, the... The picturesque landscape for us, but yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other yeah. thing was they did have about six helicopters, uh, so when they're buzzing around, you assume they're getting footage. Whether um, mm-hmm. they have it all turned on, I'll, I'll never know. But yeah, in in some of those significant moments, like the rope section, and um, where there was quite a few lead teams around together as well, um, you know, they were getting a lot of footage as well. But yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, I bet there is. Um, so you had mandatory TA stops, and you had to have them. Uh, how much mandatory sleep was there? I mean, yeah, so the mandatory sleep was five sleeps of three hours that could be taken at not only the transitions uh, but the most checkpoints of which there were okay. 32 checkpoints or 31. Uh, and if you took it at a TA, you had to add that 90 minutes to it as well. So it did make okay. it a minimum four and a half hour stop if you chose mm-hmm. to. Uh, yeah. So I mean, everyone has their different views of compulsory sleep. Personally, I quite like it. Um, I definitely know the pros and cons, but yeah. for us, for a long race, we considered it wasn't really going to be a problem because we planned to sleep that much anyway. And, you know, we didn't, we spent hardly any time sort of thinking about where we're going to sleep. And in the end, it almost took care of itself um, because of some uh, a pause to the race and a dark zone took up four of those five stops anyway. So, okay. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it really, it wasn't a factor. It wasn't part of the strategy. It was, um, is that what I'm hearing? Well, for us, yeah. yeah. We didn't or, have, or for, the, but, for the race in itself. Yeah, for, there were some teams uh, that uh, I guess did strategize a little bit. And unfortunately, I think for them, it was only their, um, to their um, a negative effect for them. Um, and I'll mm. tell you about that as we go through the race, but yeah. Yeah. But, um, well, let's, let's talk about the race, get into the race. 
because, you know, theoretically, I'm going to want to know why. Why did you do this part that I just watched? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well. So, I mean, you had to come in. Per, how how long were you there before the race started? Uh, look, we arrived. I guess about we arrived on the Thursday night, and we had Friday, Saturday. Sunday, all the gears. So those three days were taken up with, uh, I guess, your regular compulsory uh, gear and, I guess, a little bit of education and training on the sailing boats that was, you know, really valuable. Uh, it didn't actually take up a whole lot of time, but just getting through 66 teams meant that yeah. it took, like, a full three-day program. Uh, but, look, we never felt board and we never felt like we were under any time pressure really because um, mm. actually packing the gear was pretty easy compared to what we're used to because we got yeah. uh, one big gear tub well we had one each and so you pretty well just put all your gear in that and then there were a couple of other decisions as opposed to what you put in your bike box and uh, we had one other bag to drop off that we got very little detail about where that would be or what you would use it for. So um, a little bit of extra clothing, another 24 hours worth of food, I think was about all, all we had in there. Mm-hmm. Some people put in shoes. Um, but So Sunday night we had our race briefing, but then that didn't really give us many details, again, still of um, the course layout. So... The, all the packing was done without any maps, and all we found out that night was that there was the five different legs, and hmm. I guess we suspected then that we wouldn't get the maps for each leg until uh, you know you'd finished the previous leg, and, and that's yeah. how it worked out. Yeah. Uh, and then Monday morning we all got up quite early, had to drive with our support crew. Um, pretty well to the other side of um, the main island in Fiji and mm-hmm. set up camp in a school yard there. The afternoon we had a quite a lengthy opening ceremony and then got to bed pretty early. Uh, up again for well, quarter past five, I think we started walking down to the start, which we had our... Um, uh, outrigger paddles and sailing gear, and still we only knew that we had 24 to oh, 48 or 60 hours, I think, was the time that you're expected to be out there until you saw your TA. So that's all you um, mm. all you knew, really, and that you were starting on water. Um, okay. So walk down to uh, uh, an open field and then... It probably wasn't really until that point that you realised how big a production it was going to be in terms of cameras. <laughs> and Bear yeah. um, arrives, jumps out of his helicopter, gives us a pep talk, um, shows the a big overview of the map, uh, and then we're pretty well off down to the river's edge where we get our maps and a quick... Oh, I mean, they didn't tell us how long it was going to be until you started, but you had your boats all tied up 
to the riverbank and you had your maps, so we were quickly loading the boats and drawing up the first of those maps and you had maybe 10 or 15 minutes, I think it was in the end, probably just enough time to quickly map out the course and get on the boat. Um, and then it started. Uh, mm-hmm. 66 Kamakaos or Thamakao is the traditional uh, sailing boat of Polynesia and it's a, an outrigger style so you sit in um, the main hull but then it's got a, um, a parallel hull to it with some connections that um, always needs to point into the wind so we some teams you know, made the opportunity to get out and do some training beforehand but that was very limited opportunities and uh, the sailing is quite different to a regular sailing boat in that um, mm. you need to tuck when you need to change uh, directions relative to the wind you actually shunt and it doesn't mean much to uh, someone listening to a podcast but basically it means that you um, you turn the front of the boat becomes the back of the boat and you change your positions and yeah so you know, that was really cool to sort of learn this new technique um, as it was, we had the two most still days in Fiji's history, it felt like, and there was no wind. And <laughs> of course. So, you know, they built 66 boats, um, no doubt a, a big cost, um, and then some teams didn't even ever put up their sail. Um, and, yes. yeah, so that, that was actually really, you know, disappointing that the weather was, um, and, you know, Later in the race, and even after the race, there was so much wind. Um, but yeah. it, it just made it really quite hot on the water. Literally no, no breeze at all. Um, so so we, we drawn uh, starting spots, and we were, didn't have a great start. We were back in 57th position or something like that. So wow. right near the back, and this river was only... Oh, must have been 20 metres wide, 25, and the boats are, I don't know, five metres long or something like that. Not a whole lot of space. And we actually got out paddling quite quickly, and then um, there was sort of big hold-ups in front. And some of the slower teams to get off the riverbank then just came out and T-boned us um, <laughs> putting some holes in our boat, which uh, wasn't a great start. So five minutes in, we are actually like, our team's uh, imploding a little bit as we're all yelling what we think we need to do, whether that be keep paddling, whether that be try to repair the boat on the move, or whether that be we need to actually stop and check out the damage. Um, so, I mean, looking back at it, I'm like, this is... This is not a great start, but then also the way four relatively uh, calm people in regular life were um, just <laughs> not very calm at that moment. Um, <laughs> uh, I was like, wow, what's this going to be like? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, look, you're in like the biggest race in the last how many every years and you're yeah. starting and yeah, I mean, why, w- why wouldn't you go a little nuts? Yeah, exactly. So... We actually did keep paddling for a while, but then the outrigger that had the hole in it 
by the time it was sort of dragging underneath the water, it's meant to you know, float along, bounce along the yeah. top of the water. So we're like, this is not going to work. Um, the leg was, oh, I have to find the distances, but significant. Uh, so mm. about half an hour in, we had to pull up on the side uh, of the bank and start trying to repair it, which you know, we had a little bit of you know, tape, basically, was about it. And we had some locals come up uh, one after the other with something a little bit more significant to help uh, fix it, which was mm. really, um, we were really grateful for. And then eventually a helicopter lands and like we had a camera crew with us and because we were last in the race and they the race organizers offered us a replacement uh, part to the boat uh, basically after we'd already finished repairing it and we were like oh should we should we wait should we just go like our repair looks pretty good and then we did decide we wasted another 20 minutes waiting for that part to arrive and get that um, new armour um, put on. Yeah. Um, and then off we went about 45 minutes after the last team had gone by. So, wow. yeah, that was it. So we had to finish paddling out of this um, this estuary and then into the, the ocean. And uh, at a set point, we could all put up our sails. Um, so we were within... You know, we actually started catching teams by that point um, as they were putting up their sails and, and we put up the, well, you have to put up the mast and the sail and get that all organised and and then we had yeah, very little wind. Um, so we just kept on heading, passing teams. It felt like we were doing quite well uh, because, yeah. of course, you're passing all the teams at the back of the race. But yeah. uh, we moved up. Uh, we had to paddle uh, up to an island off the east coast of uh, Fiji, and there there was going to be a relatively short, I think, 22-kilometre trekking leg. Um, and at that point, we'd moved up into 29th. So mm. we'd passed half the field, um, yeah. but there was still a lot of boats on the shore. Uh, and then the next, I guess, surprise to us was that at least half of those boats didn't even have their masts up. And huh. we are like, oh, okay. That was a bit of a surprise. So I guess for us, all we could see are boats with their sails up. Um, but from what I heard of the lead pack was they didn't think there was any wind, so they didn't stop to put it up. And they were like... When a team goes sailing past us with their sail up, well, then we'll yeah. put our sail up. So they all just paddle. And um, we actually ended up sort of losing more time because of um, sort of the time we spent yeah. trying to get... And also steering the boat with... Um, it means that you, a lot of the time you have one person not paddling or even two because yeah. there's some awkward positionings when you've got the sail up with where you can and can't paddle. Uh, so we'd actually drop more time, um, and we, and you know, we didn't have the other good teams around us to push and see how how we were yeah. doing. Um, so we got out on this run, and then it was you sort of realised how hot it was to be on land, and uh, started passing a few teams, uh, and then like I started to 
really struggle in the heat at that point and went from quite a quick run to a, a walk very quickly it felt like uh, and then uh, we got a couple of checkpoints had to climb up and we started on like a, a road but then it soon became a, um, a very small walking track up over a pass and at that point we then started passing more and more teams where at least one person had blown up in the heat and was um, laying under a waterfall or something like that trying to cool themselves down so no, I guess I didn't feel too bad. I was still on the move. Um, yeah. And we got up to this checkpoint at the pass and sort of right on sunset or in um, darkness. And as we passed, one of the more significant teams uh, was um, Columbia Viterade. And mm-hmm. they were actually taking a three-hour sleep, um, just about to. So I thought, oh, look, that's... That's interesting. Using up one of their sleeps pretty early uh, to let one of their teammates recover, and I, I kind of thought that was, you know, a brave strategy. Um, yeah. And that we they're going to lose time to us now, but no doubt they're going to be coming hard, you know, stronger later in the race. Yeah. Um, and anyway, we got down to back to our boats and. I do then do another, I don't know, four or five hours paddling, a short um, uh, snorkel or a dive to the bottom of the reef to collect one of our, our first of our medallions. So this is kind of quite a, I guess, survivor type um, yeah. introduction that we had to collect yeah. these five medallions as the race went on at a you know, significant point during that leg. Uh, so Aaron was quite quick there. We've got the and we then passed uh, some of his Swedish rivals in Safat or Swedish Armed Forces and Eastwind who were doing quite well. Uh, so we're, I think we're up into about 15th position or something by that stage. Uh, and then we had to another sort of 10 kilometres of paddling to the shore finally for um, a transition. And so we'd been out since, I guess, 7 o'clock in the morning, and we reached that point about midnight. So it's been a pretty long day on the water. And yeah. then, yeah, so we actually had only had the maps up until that point, so not even the whole of the first uh, leg. Got a bit of a surprise because we thought it was a, a mountain bike next, I'm pretty sure. And then turned out it was a stand-up paddleboard, and... It was a 30-kilometre stand-up paddleboard. Um, wow. Yeah, so we're like, well, <laughs> that's three times as far as I'd ever um, stand-up paddleboarded and, yeah, about equal to my lifetime's training. Um, <laughs> and so off we set off in the dark and uh, I did have the map on this section and um, Aaron was um, pretty insistent on... Um, making sure we're going in the right direction, which is kind of like, you know, yes, yeah, 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 we're going. And um, I guess he had seen a couple of teams head off uh, just as we had finished the sailing and in a slightly different direction to where we were going, which is why he was so insistent on checking where, checking the direction. 
uh, it turns out we started off sort of on the the coastline and then had to go inland up a river for yeah 25 of the 30 kilometres and no checkpoints only one waypoint and until you, you know you got to this next village well little did we know until you know a bit later in the race you started hearing the stories that um, Mike Close's team out there and I think the French team some uh, pretty good experienced athletes in that one and a few others had to actually paddle up a, the wrong estuary and wow. uh, for a significant you know, period of time because you know, what were they looking for? It's pretty hard at night time in a winding river to work out whether you know, I guess yeah. you just wouldn't have even considered that they were in the wrong spot for a long time. Um, so yeah, they certainly lost a bit of time and a lot of energy and frustration on that one. So uh, while there there wasn't too much, the navigation wasn't actually particularly difficult throughout the whole race. Uh, it, it only takes one small mistake to you know, yeah. Pretty well you want to, yeah. You want to be in the right river. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> in, a, in a thirty kilometer stand up paddleboard leg. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So look, that was actually uh, we had the tide with us for most of it. Um, again, if we had been a little further up, closer to the front, they actually had the tide coming in the whole time. Uh, and quite tiring in those sort of pre-dawn hours um, to keep going on the stand-up paddleboard, uh, even on the yeah. fourth night. Um, so a few little sleepy patches in there, but we eventually got through without sort of losing too much momentum, uh, came into a village, and that's where our bikes were. Uh, so we, I think by then we're up to about 10th position, so... We were kind of pretty happy. We were like, you know, 24 hours ago we were in last. Now we're up into the top 10. Let's mm. see what happens in the next 24 hours. And we saw uh, Team Estonia and um, Sky Canada were both heading out on their mountain bikes. So they were about 25, 30 minutes in front of us by the time we'd transitioned. Uh, and so that next mountain bike leg was 60 kilometres and... Really, it wasn't until you got on the bike and you'd done about the first five kilometres that you realised how um, steep and hilly these bike legs were going to be in Fiji. Uh, the, the road surface on this one was pretty good, but just a lot of punchy hills, nothing huge, but you know, every time you were working quite hard and as soon as the sun sort of came out that day, you were really cooking in the, um, in the heat with very little um, sort of wind movement and uh, yeah by the time you got to the end of that leg which I can't remember for us was sort of early afternoon uh, maybe two o'clock it was really quite hot Um, so yeah we finally reached um, camp one and had our first 90 minute stop got our maps for the whole of the next leg and yeah look it wasn't I mean, we weren't going to have any sort of sleep for that one I think we did get the marks, maps marked up and you know lay out of the sun for 20 minutes or half an hour or something like that but there wasn't really much yeah. sleeping going on at that time um, even laying in the river um, 
having a drink was actually more beneficial. Uh, so the next leg was started off with, I guess, quite a short 10 or 12 kilometer trek and uh, started off up a gorge. Uh, and we did sort of learn, learn after the race how similar this course was to the previous Eco Challenge course. Um, this was actually the start point of last um, 2003 course. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, so we, soon after we started that trek, uh, we had a big change in the weather and there was a, a big storm came along. And, uh, you know, literally from when it started raining, it was just torrential. And we were making our way up the gorge and it was actually really spectacular. Probably one of the best moments I've had in adventure racing with water just pouring off cliffs everywhere. Uh, and maybe only half an hour up, it really became, uh, you're crossing the river a lot. And then the river was getting deeper, and then you get into the real gorge section where you were literally swimming up or pulling yourself along the cliff wall, as it was at that point, and getting quite difficult. And we sort of got through there to um, the next checkpoint, which had the medallions, but uh, turns out that no other team after us was able to get through. They physically could not actually get up the um, the gorge. And so that was the Estonians who we'd actually pass them in transition. They had you know, a little bit more than a nine-minute transition or something like that. And uh, you know, it really was unfortunate for them and the teams who were sort of nearby that uh, they were sort of so close to getting by but didn't. Um, so we were actually up into sixth spot. I think we didn't know that until a bit later. But we did this uh, a little bit, you know, some tricky, um, not so much navigation, but route finding, I guess, on the next leg where there was uh, local foot uh, trails that you needed to find. And they'd given, you had the map, but and they'd given you a few references, um, grid references with you know, follow the trail from this Creek Junction up to this summit or something like that and then mm. um, and with that rain it would just be just become remarkably slippery as well uh, like, <laughs> oh, wow yeah. we're, we're basically the first or probably second person that had been through there since it had rained and already like on the descent it was like a slippery slide and oh. like wow what's this going to be like with uh, another 60 teams uh, in the end, I don't actually know how many teams did that section. I'm not sure. Um, so we got onto down to the river, and we had to do uh, build our billy billies. Which um, to anyone who didn't watch the previous Eco Challenge, the billy billies are traditional Fijian bamboo raft. Um, so bamboo grows over there quite um, quite a lot in the rivers and. So they cut these big lengths of, like, five-metre lengths of bamboo and each team got nine pieces uh, to build a raft. Uh, unlike the last Eco Challenge, there was um, locals on hand who were sort of quite happy to help build it. 
So at the end, well, we'd done our research. We knew how to build one, but well, we're not going to say no to um, to some locals who want to help you out. So uh, from what I hear, pretty well everyone had the locals just build their raft for them. Uh, and so they were t- you had two uh, Billy Billies per team, so two people on each of them and no paddles. You just had like a, another longer bamboo uh, paddle shaft, basically, which you okay. could use, use to paddle or push off the ground, or um, there's many different techniques used. Um, but the because of the rain, there was the river was actually flowing quite quickly, and so you were actually, you know, you had to keep it in the flow. There was a few points where they had well marked the um sort of the danger points or the on the river, but you still had to actually steer your um, long billy-billy through some of these obstacles, which is quite fun. Um, and about an hour into that leg, uh, Catherine and Aaron, who were moving a bit faster than Tim and myself, were talking with um, a local in a boat or someone in a boat, and then they passed on to us that the race had been halted, uh, postponed, or had stopped, and... We would have to keep paddling down for like another hour to a mandatory portage, and at that point we'd hop out and sort of await further instruction. And and we were kind of pretty puzzled by uh, by that. And he also said, "Oh, it'll be about an hour's paddle." Well, so you know, I guess we had Aaron's like, "Well, we're going to paddle pretty hard for the next hour to make the most of it." And uh, so we did, and then after 90 minutes, and then two hours, and then two and a half hours, and uh, Tim, who's a policeman, is like questioning the other boat yeah. about what they'd said exactly and more details, and his, the responses coming back, he was like, oh, I don't believe these guys. I think they're, um, I think they're just making it up. Like <laughs> they were just trying yeah. to, they were just trying to motivate us or gee us up to sort of go a bit harder, or because we. We were a little bit slower, and and I was sort of feeling the same. And eventually, uh, we sort of reached this point where we, we could see some lights along the side of the river, and uh, and then some a team called out to us. They'd actually just pulled out, and they're like, "I'll oh, pull over on the left up here." And so uh, yeah, we did. We got out at this point, and the the one CP guy there uh, informed us that the race had stopped. Uh, we were going to get accompanied up to um, the local village and they would look after us for the night and to come back at first light in the morning to get more information. Hmm. So that was it for our end. We um, yeah. just happily took the break and went up to, um, got put up by a local family who, you know, their, I guess, extended family took in the six teams that were, we were the six team there. Uh, pretty well, all of them, I guess four of them were already nicely tucked up in bed and Spanish team just in front of us um, were there getting set up and that was a, a really good experience. We got to um, sit, get some you know, lovely hospitality, wake up with, um, you know, we had some nice uh, comfortable flooring and uh, a lot of us didn't have dry clothes so you just, uh, or, you know, yeah many clothes, other than our 
nothing other than our racing clothes. Um, so help out with some shorts or a Fijian dress or something like that and working up to some freshly cooked roti bread and sweet tea for breakfast. Uh, and you know, just a lot of chatter. They were up really early, the locals. They, yeah. At 4 a.m. they were up uh, praying, which was, yeah, pretty early. Uh, so we had uh, we had a good seven hours sleep there. And obviously, the teams in front had had even more. Um, but yeah. seven hours felt good. And you know, for us, we were just happy to, um, well have a little bit of good luck maybe come our way and that we'd caught back up to the lead finally. And, yeah. Uh, so down at the river at 6 o'clock the next morning, we got informed that we'd be starting at 6.30 and that we'd be able to use two of our mandatory sleep stops for the previous night. So it was effectively like a dark zone, so we were restarting all together yeah. and the teams in front had just had more rest. Yep. We only had um, you know, another three of the sleep stops to use. Um, and apart from that, we didn't have any idea what was going on behind us, but we'd considered that there must be quite a long, uh, you know, at least a four-hour lead because no one else was on the Billy Billy and it had taken four hours to that point. Um, and, yeah, I guess you'd have to talk to someone else about where teams got stopped along the way, along the course. Yeah. So they either got stopped at that transition um, camp or at different checkpoints. Some of them actually got transported to the camp and then they had a restart again the next morning at um, a couple of different time intervals, I think. So they gave some teams a bit of a head start over others depending on where they were at the course. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of them got to do that gorge section uh, because the water level had dropped, but then I, I think I did hear later that other courses, other t- uh, other teams, bypassed that section. So, yes. So we got back out the next morning on the Billy Billies with the six teams, and uh, it was sort of all go from the start, which is you know pretty entertaining to have everyone around because we had to portage these Billy Billies over a big sandbank, and they're, they're quite heavy, um, but. Once we got on the Billy Billies, uh, we could see all the different techniques that teams were using as well. So Team New Zealand were typically the strongest on any water sports. They um, <laughs> moved off the front. They were, had both team members standing up. And so you basically like they were doing two-bladed paddling standing up because uh, the bamboo poles are so long. And then... Tiki Tour also from New Zealand were there and they had more of a stand-up paddleboard technique. So they were doing like long single blades and we'd actually were sitting down and hiking more. But as it went on, you sort of got a bit scared of that as well and we were up on our knees or standing up as well. But uh, in the end, the team sort of all spread out a little bit. But... Uh, Took it down another four hours of paddling, I think. So we got to transition, and New Zealand had already gone. Um, so they had at least a 20 minute sort of lead, and Tiki Tour were about 10 minutes in front of us, and Team Canada were um, right on our heels as well. So we were in some yeah. third. And got out on the mountain bike, uh, 
again, this leg was about 40 kilometres and not quite as hilly as the, the previous day's ride, and uh, but still was was pretty hot when the, the sun sort of came out. And uh, we didn't see any of the other teams on that ride, so we sort of didn't catch up and didn't really lose. Um, yeah. And that took us to TA2 or Camp 2, uh, and quickly got changed out of our gear and then looked at the maps and then found out we're actually riding out of here on mountain bikes. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe we'll learn to look at the maps before we make any decisions. Um, yeah. So we had that 90 minutes there again, marked up maps. It was like the next mountain bike lead was still quite significant and uh, was going to take us into the next night. And then we had a shortish trek, six kilometres down to uh, the start of the whitewater rafting and there was another dark zone. So we knew at that point, it was you know sort of only the middle of the day or early afternoon that um, no one was going to get on the water for the whitewater rafting that day yeah. with a 12-hour a dark zone. Uh, and then the following, the leg after that one, was another pretty long, oh, I guess our first long trek was, I'm not sure, 45, 50K or something. We never really measured it at the time, but <laughs> uh, it did look quite long compared to the pre, you know, the mountain bike. Yeah. Uh, so we got out on the mountain bike and, again, sort of in still in third place. Uh, and it was a really picturesque area at this point. There was some really um, big... It kind of looks like limestone hills, something that you see in uh, you know, Thailand or Vietnam or something like that. Some went through some little villages, but the schools are all sort of out cheering for you, which you know, really is just the best part about racing in some of these areas that um, the locals are just so keen to um, give you their support. Yeah. And there are a few river crossings. Uh, there that um, we then came back to the next day. Um, the during that night uh, it started raining. Oops, Rob, you went away. Hello. Oh no, we lost Rob. Yeah, are so we back? Not sure what happened there. I hear you. Yeah, so we're back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're we're talking so like halfway yeah, around the world to each other. So it's acceptable started, once in a while. And then the roads got quickly <laughs> so. very muddy, sticky clay that 
then you could not even you couldn't ride, but even pushing your bike became mm. quite difficult uh, with the build up of the mud. And uh, I had a couple of like as soon as it got wet, I had a couple of crashes that sort of dinted my confidence a little bit, and then. Uh, probably was one of the low points for me. I just, um, whenever even pushing my bike, as soon as I'd move the, um, get to the top of the hill and ride down, it was like the clay was pushing my chain off, so I kept on losing my chain. And one of those moments where you knew it wasn't going to last long, but it still felt like a bit of a struggle. And uh, I guess eventually we got out to like a little more major road, uh, which was much better surface and a quick descent down into the next checkpoint was um, where we had to leave our bikes. So uh, in sort of great eco-challenge form, they had uh, some gurney bike washers set up with a generator and everything. So we got to clean our bikes, um, pack them away, and we managed to get, uh, I think it was 10 o'clock at night, so we got... Mm. Six hours rest there, uh, used up another two of our sleep, uh, mandatory sleeps. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we put up our tarp. We had a really yeah. good set, nice and comfortable, nice and warm, but none of us really slept that well. I'm not quite sure whether it was something in the food we'd eaten beforehand or we'd had such a great seven hours sleep the night before. I'm not sure, but we were there for six hours, but I wouldn't say that we really slept that well um, which is pretty frustrating um, then as you do when you're tired and um, trying to get up and move a little bit slow to get going in the morning but uh, jog down, had to jog down to the river and made it there with sort of 10 minutes to spare at uh, 10 to 6 and the two New Zealand teams were there and also Thunderbolt from Australia. So they had actually kind of bypassed us during the night. They um, hopped off their bikes, walked down to the river rather than sleeping at um, the previous checkpoint, and which was really quite wet, and um, decided they were going to have their rest at the rafting put in. And they'd had three hours rest, so they were a little bit behind, but you know they're ready for... A, Day three restart. Was it day three, day four? I can't even remember. Yeah. One of those days, yeah. And so the rafting was... Um, that, one was of those really days, fun, yeah. Actually. We didn't have a guide, um, but the, the paddling was still down like a, a narrow gorge and really picturesque. And you know, enough rapids or difficulty that... If you didn't know what you're doing, you're going to lose time, um, but never, you know, dangerous. I mean, it didn't feel dangerous or something like that. But yeah, really good fun for the first couple of hours, and then it sort of it opened up a lot. Um, yeah. But still, were like a pretty good flow. So we ended up. I think it only took us three and a half hours. Pardon, when we finished the, the section, um, and this was back at yeah. CP18 now, and we'd been through there the previous night on the mountain bike, um, and we could see the water level had raised significantly as we were crossing the river, and the teams coming across with their mountain bikes were um, starting to struggle, and 
I think after that they um, started getting like the locals were ferrying them across on um, on boats or something like that to to get them across so they weren't washed away. Um, but yeah, look, really enjoyed that white water um, section. And so we were off in second place. We passed Tikituwa and um, Team New Zealand were just leaving as we arrived, so they had a couple of minutes up on us. But um, the next leg was, I guess, what a lot of people would say was their highlight of the leg and unexpectedly was uh, this long track leg where the rules specified you were allowed to hire a local porter or horse to carry your gear. And, look, there's been a little bit of information about this in the pre-race, which I didn't like the sound of. I thought it's just too, um, I guess, too much chance. I don't really like anything that um, can be unfair. Um, and we'd also heard stories of the previous Eco Challenge of teams using porters um, and with guides, and I didn't really like the sound of that either. But we... Uh, I tried to tee up a horse the previous day when I'd come through and um, our guy was going to meet us there at midday. And I think when he sort of found out a little bit more about it, he decided the horse maybe wasn't going to be the best. Um, But we um, quickly had four men who were carrying our bags and running running ahead of us at like a great speed. Um, Wow. <laughs> and uh, we, this leg sort of went up and down through quite a few river crossings and then through all these um, other little villages. And unfortunately, we were, I was just giving my bag to the porter and was just a little bit behind the rest of the guys. And when Tiki Tour came into the village and just sort of saw us leaving the village with a porter, and then they hadn't weren't going to do anything, and then they sort of quickly re- looked around and found another two guys, uh, which if we'd only just been sort of a minute or two in front of them, we probably could have had significant time into them. But so there was four teams of us, or two teams, and um, the porters, and we're moving pretty quickly, and sort of twenty or thirty minutes into it, we caught up to Team New Zealand.
you there, Andy? Yep, I'll cut out for a sec. Uh, and so we, um, yeah. then once we got a little bit behind, uh, we were actually getting like yeah. the second pick of the, of the best, fittest guys in the villages. Uh, um, so we, again, dropped further behind, but still mm-hmm. just so far we ended up, up going up over this quite long, um, mountain pass and with three brothers and a sister all from the same family who their father had like um, basically pimped them out and uh, we uh, probably slowed down at that point you realise oh this is a pretty long leg we kind of need to actually eat some food and uh, and give some food to our porters and uh, it wasn't just a, a sprint any longer um, but great fun having the locals involved and you know have conversations about what they were farming and, you know, the villages that they live in and learning, sort of meeting some people who uh, were literally willing to see some Westerners go walking by and then ask if they want to come for a run with them and carry their backpack and literally just drop what they're doing and head off for the afternoon for the evening or the night or whatever it is. Literally, you know, because maybe a local was already with wow. them and, you know, you had guys, one guy threw down his cigarette and picked up a backpack and <laughs> he wasn't the best choice, um, but, you know, he was what was available at the time. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, so after the mountain pass, again, we came into this other village where we uh, traded out our four and got another four guys and... Headed off. It was about another ten or twelve kilometres down um, down the valley, and uh, we were sort of pretty casual at this point. We um, we weren't sort of pushing the pace and and lost a bit of time to the guys in front, but it was all about sort of trying to maintain um, keep our bodies in good shape for just what we expected to come later in the race, um, and wanted to be there in good shape. So. Uh, we got into this next village, uh, mm-hmm. Camp 3 at Lutu, and uh, I mean, wh- I've just got to, I'm probably um, blabbering on a bit, but one of the best stories for me from the race was one of our last porters. He he was a school teacher in Suva, which is the, the capital city, which is sort of a couple of hours from where we were. It was Friday afternoon. Uh, we came through his village at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and um, three of his mates yelled out to him, you know, oh, come for a walk down to Lutu, whatever, we've got these guys going to pay us. And he's like, oh, yep, rodeo. So he'd finished work, brought the bus back to Lutu, hopped on his horse, ridden the 12 kilometres or, you know, whatever it was that took us two and a half hours to walk back to his village. Just arrived and then has his mates go... Let's walk back to Lutu. So he picks up a backpack, walks back to where he'd just come from, and then I'm like, "What are you guys gonna do? It's you know 8:30 at night. They don't have any headlights. They just have like a cell phone or something like that." And we're like, "Oh, we're gonna borrow some horses and um, and ride back home." And so yeah. that's what they did. They get two horses, two men on each of them, and then rode their horses back that night to their village. Uh, I'm like, wow, what a Friday night. Um, it, just, 
you just can't see that happening in uh, oh. America or Australia or in those places. <laughs> um, but that's what sort of made it, you know, such a cool experience. Anywhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we had another 90 minutes. Well, actually, we had a four and a half hours oh. stop there, um, maybe even five hours. So we slept for a good four hours uh, before we started the next leg. And Team New Zealand had headed off after their 90 minutes. Uh, they were the only ones. Um, Tiki Toon slept four hours. Team Canada slept four hours, and we did. And we didn't see any other teams um, before we left, I don't think, at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was another trekking section, which had included the long rope section. Uh, we... And I guess probably the first little bit of difficult navigation as well and quite difficult rock hopping up a, a valley um, to get to that point. Uh, we headed off and made a little bit of a nav mistake, which uh, taking like a parallel uh, galley or valley of, of a walking track. And we sort of soon realised that... It, we were wrong, and then as we were turning around, Team Canada came back. They'd been further up the valley, and they said that someone else had already been up, and turns out Tiki Tour had been um, further up the valley, and they'd lost even more time. Uh, I'm sure a lot of teams after us made the same mistake, including East Wind, that apparently spent 30 hours up yeah. the wrong valley and climbed it literally all the way to the top um, up a parallel valley looking for the ropes and that was um, eventually the demise of their team uh, and their race but um, we sort of got back on track and were moving quite well um, through that night and got to the bottom of the ropes sort of just after dusk uh, just after dawn and uh, yeah I mean we'd seen what the coverage was uh, previously, and we weren't even sure if it was the same cliff, but it actually was. Um, set off on our ascending, and you know it's something we've done a little bit of training on, but we're definitely not all very experienced. And get up over the first lip, you know, maybe a hundred meters of ascending, and then you're already sort of tired. And then you look at the next section. And I just, oh my god, it was like another three times that size behind it and you weren't even sure if that was the top um, with you know, significant ropes set up significant staff there on hand um, I think there were 30 staff members throughout the rope section um, which is incredible and before you know it we had the helicopter buzzing around us quite a lot and the Canadians got there about 30 minutes after us or something like that uh, which they then proceeded to move like Spider-Man and caught all of that and more on the rope section. So that was really impressive to see what um, you know, a high level of skills can bring to something that, that you, you know is a really small part of the race. Um, but yeah, sort of learned uh, a lot to be able to yeah. do that better next time, just having your gear totally dialed. Um, and it's just a lot different to doing it up a, you know, 10, 20 meter straight wall that we've been practicing on locally, um, which they felt pretty easy, but this was really quite difficult in the real yeah. in the real world. But yeah, absolutely stunning area. 
Oh, yeah, and I'm sure it'll look yeah, easy it always, if you watch the yeah, Canadians It always looks it. easy when if you're you watching watch it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. it won't look so easy. Yeah. And so at the top yeah. of that, <laughs> we had a, a really slippery um, river to continue up, which yeah. you know, a lot of people will talk about just how slippery the rocks were. And uh, another rope section where the Canadians then, so I guess we moved away from them on the terrain and then they caught back up on the ropes. And then we finished off with a quite a long, cold swim, which, again, if you'd done the previous EK Challenge course, you would have known what was ahead of you because a lot of this course was all the same. Uh, we didn't, but we just kept on swimming and, you know, you got colder and you're like, oh, just around the corner and then, oh, just keep going, oh, getting a bit colder, oh, just around the corner. And it really did drag on. And, you know, a lot of teams, um, we were doing it in the day, middle of the afternoon, and we're like, oh, wow, it's going to be tough at night time. Uh, as it always is. And I guess we were like, oh, well, we just swung away from the Canadians again. Yeah. We'll um, just got to... Keep, keep going and we got out a quick short one kilometre up to the next checkpoint where they had a warming station uh, which I guess and, and the bag the mystery bag that we dropped off before the race that had um, more food and clothes and and we had a 45 minute car shuffle or a, yeah 45 yeah. minute drive but we had like an hour or something like that to do it in or an hour and a half so we pretty well Quickly, um, quickly changed and into the car. Um, and Bear Girls was also there giving yeah. us a big pep talk about how we'd broken the back of the course and um, you know, lots of other motivating words. Um, uh, we were sort of, oh, I guess we weren't ignoring him, but we had just made another gap on him to you know, get on with it. So we got to the end of the car shuffle and New Zealand were blowing up their stand-up paddleboards. So they were only 25, 30 minutes in front of us at that point. And they'd done all that previous section at night time, uh, thinking that they were going get, to get it finished during the night and then they'd get to sleep. Uh, but they had underestimated how long it was going to take. Uh, so they'd actually yeah. sort of slept through the day at that checkpoint. And I think... I probably had used up a four hour, uh, another three hour sleep card there. So we were all on the same amount of sleep uh, and they were still only just in front of us. So we're kind of pretty happy about that. And and the Canadians again were yeah, about the same back to gap behind us. Um, stand up paddleboard, another 15 kilometres or 20 kilometres. And that was actually quite nice out on a dam with a little bit of tailwind and it was actually starting to enjoy the stand-up paddleboarding at this point. It was like a nice way to break up uh, these in the legs uh, until you got to the end of the dam, which had a w low water level. Yeah. And this was really a tricky point because it's marked on the map as a dam, uh, you know, one continuous body of water, but you came to the end and it was like a really windy river which you couldn't really navigate because, of course, that detail was not there. And you're sort of then just going on bearing and hoping that you got the right, um, you know, didn't take the wrong junction. But soon uh, it was really small, like you're dragging the boat on the you know, the rudder on the bottom of the, um, over logs and rocks and things like that. And 
we made the call to get out and walk. Uh, probably a little bit prematurely, I think, if we'd continued on just a bit further, we wouldn't have ended up in the three-kilometre trudge on sort of knee-deep mud that was um, that we then did have. And, again, that was just one of those little moments, another sting in the tail. This, while the course wasn't as maybe as long and as tough as what we'd anticipated, there were quite a few of those legs that just had that sting in the tail that... Um, you thought it was almost over, and then um, another big challenge comes along. And fortunately for us, we finished just on dark, yeah. and knew it was going to be more difficult for things behind us. Canada managed to sort of scrape through as well before it got too dark, and we started off on the next trek leg, which we'd been thinking yeah. there was talk about uh, from the race organisers about a leg that took. 24 hours, and depending on which um, course recce they did, their team members either ended up with hypothermia or hyperthermia. So we kind of thought, well, it must be this one. Um, and <laughs> But we'd actually then, we were literally over the highlands of the, of the country and moved. There's a really um, geographical divide in the the island of Fiji that has like a wet side and a dry side and, and we were just moving from the wet side to the dry side and I hadn't actually looked at the legs mm-hmm. um, I think Aaron had marked up these ones and I hadn't really seen it and uh, I guess I had a little bit more experience with local maps and then realised oh actually we're moving to the dry side we've got trails he talks about trails this leg's not going to take us it's not 24 hours of jungle trek like we were kind of anticipating and uh, but we kept with our strategy of having a good sleep each night and stopped at this next local village uh, and found there basically slept in their local hall or meeting place or something like that on some mattresses again another really good four hour sleep um, for the three of us except for Catherine who got sick at this point and um, with some gastro and didn't really sleep that well, unfortunately. But uh, we were up at uh, the Canadian Pass pretty soon after we lay down and yeah. got a good gap on us. Um, and I mean, this was probably a real sort of crux, crux point and decision point for us. Was uh, and we, Aaron wanted to sleep for four hours. I wanted to sleep for less, um, but I didn't really fight it too much because I was still considered. No, we're going to have a few more days. We're literally only on night four at this point. And, and we thought, and we'd been told going to the race to expect a seven yeah. and a half day winning time. Um, we also heard from, that was from one of the, ra- the race director. We also heard eight and a half days from Mark Burnett, um, if at all. It was, <laughs> was how difficult he thought the course was. Um, turns out that we've come a long way in 15 years and the sport's a lot faster and we're a lot better at maybe than what they accounted for. But So we got up about midnight, finished, continued on this trek and then we had a bit of a difficult um, just route finding section coming out of one of the valleys but did that quite well and then got up on this next road, but 
Ben Aaron did start to um, didn't realise he was falling asleep. Really, he didn't realise as much. And then we walked past a junction that we um, should have taken and ended up losing about two hours. By the time we you know, realised we'd gone too far, came back, found what we thought was the right spot, stuck around a bit longer, and yeah. pretty sure I heard the one rooster crowing for about the race and our sleep plan in the end you know would have been good if the race was a bit longer but Canada slept less and made it to the finish before us so they had a really impressive race so, and um, yeah, yeah New Zealand is always tough to beat yeah. yeah again we weren't really that far behind them but um, yeah that was um, EK Challenge so, well very 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 cool it's uh, cool to know what's, what's going on. <laughs> I've been talking for a long time. Ah, that's fine. So, but, uh, so uh, what's next for you before we go? <laughs> Anything planned? Oh, I guess I was hoping uh, that I would be a lot more tired and unmotivated to do another race. But, uh, and I could forget about that for a while, but two weeks on now I'm actually feeling quite good and of course you know in the days after the race yeah. where you're catching up with your old friends and everyone even at that point still oh you know what's on for next year and um, look I don't have any plans yeah. at this stage for next year uh, God's own is not until November and we haven't entered but uh would be great to do that race late um, in the, the North Island because yeah. we've done most of the South Island ones and it'd be really good to shake it up and, and see a different part of New Zealand and I think it'll really um, change the dynamic of the race a lot whereas most of the good teams are from the South Island and they have a real advantage down there mm. whereas I don't think that'll be the case in the North Island uh, and certainly with I'm sure it's going to be a, I hear it's a sellout a crowd of 100 teams it's going to be an amazing event yeah. uh, we've got the A1 series continuing in Australia and I'm actually organising the first race next year in March so I've got to um, really turn off my athlete hat and put my director's hat on for a while yes. and get some work done because uh, EK Challenge has just taken up so much yeah. of this year in terms of um, time but also sort of mental and emotional commitment to it. Um, there's really been a lot involved. Um, but, yeah, I'm not going to be doing much for the next couple of months, <laughs> but I certainly feel like it won't be long until I'm keen to get another race on the calendar. Yeah. And, uh, look, by the time we actually get to post this podcast, Randy, hopefully we'll know uh, date and location of EK Challenge 2020, which... Um, there are a few rumours about, yeah. and I'm pretty sure we'll have a decision or an announcement made in November. So I guess well, feel free to cool. throw that one around. That's that's yeah. definitely not confirmed, but uh, I'm sure we'll know before the end of the year about um, applications for next year. That'll be cool. So, All right, well, thanks. Mm. You've been very generous telling us the story. I appreciate it. Oh, that's all right. I wanted to get it out before I forgot it all myself. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. And, uh, and I 
yeah, I need to actually look over the maps a little bit more and yeah. um, sort of get that in my head as well. Um, but yeah, I honestly, you know, absolutely love the Eco Challenge experience. Yeah. It was all it was built up to be, uh, and ten episodes on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's going to be um, really exciting for the sport, and I've got no doubt that it's going to. Yeah, have some type of resurgence in adventure racing, you know, particularly in North America. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it should. So you know, that would be great for the race organisers over there. Can hopefully um, start seeing some increased numbers again. Start um, building on it. Yeah, probably, yeah. Probably the only big disappointment for the uh, for the coverage was the American teams not doing that yeah. well in the final results. So you know. Hopefully that just doesn't affect um, the way uh, yeah. the public watches it. Um, I don't think sure it will. Yeah. Good, yeah, I mean there should be some good rivalries still built up in the in the coverage, um, but definitely something for the American teams yeah. to aim for and try to do better next year. It's always next year, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope, hope it goes for another ten years. Hopefully. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for your time, Randy. Thank you. So, um, enjoy your little bit of time off. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Bye. Okay. Oh, see you, mate. Bye. Let me be the leader this time. All right. Go ahead. I'll just hang back here. Let Prince play piano.
that from my daddy. <laughs> Thank you, Pops.